Welcome to UX Radio, the podcast that generates collaborative discussion about information architecture, user experience, and design. Over the last 17 years, J.D. Buckley has successfully introduced new user-centered research methods and techniques to a variety of entertainment, automotive, medical, enterprise, and augmented reality companies such as Yahoo, Disney, Idea Lab, DirecTV, Kelly Blue Book, Kaiser Permanente, and Daiquiri. J.D. is a passionate advocate of collaborative cross-functional design, multi-method research, and data triangulation to inspire and inform innovative solutions. She is currently Principal UX Strategy and Research at ADP's Pasadena Innovation Center and an adjunct instructor at Art Center College of Design. UX Radio welcomes J.D. Buckley with your hosts, Laura Federoff and Chris Chandler. Hi, and welcome to UX Radio. Today, we have a special guest to share with you. Her name is J.D. Buckley. We've been friends for many years, and I can't wait to share with you her message about Enterprise ROI UX. Welcome, J.D. Well, thank you. Good morning. J.D., I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your journey. You represent, I think, many of uh, the current trends in UX, but I'm curious you know, how you got to where you are. I've had many different careers. I started off in radio. I was a radio producer in satellite radio many years ago. And um, from there, I moved to advertising. Um, I was in radio in college, and that's how I got into satellite radio. And from radio, I moved into advertising and spent several years at agencies such as J. Walter Thompson and Dentsu and um, Shiat Day. And from advertising, I moved into technology, first working at DirecTV, Herbalife, uh, Ideal Lab, at Incubator, Yahoo, some startups, and then to uh, Kelly Blue Book. I was at Kelly Blue Book several years before I've been here at ADP for the last uh, two and a half years. So my career has been pretty eclectic. I love what I do. I found um, UX before it was called UX. I believe there was a, I think at the time I was calling it synergy between technology and humans. When I first got into technology, people were really interested in the tech, and I was interested in how it made life better for humans. So I really felt like eventually what I had learned in my several years in advertising in terms of really understanding people and really understanding what made them tick and how to market to them and how they felt and how to really speak to them could be intertwined into the development and building of technology. Um, So I actually went back to school to get my graduate degree in human factors psychology while working full-time over the years. took me several years. I don't recommend it. If someone wants to do that, it was very painful. But I learned a lot, and whenever I learned something in school I thought was interesting, I could immediately employ it in in my work and try it out. I didn't spend a lot of time with theory because I was already working in the field. Um, And so I was able to evolve different kinds of UX methodologies because I was able to put them into practice immediately. Um, And I ended up at uh, ADP several years ago. Um, after working at um, an enterprise prototyping company, startup company, and I came to ADP about, yeah, two and a half years ago. Yeah, we first met at Kelly Blue Book, and I was incredibly impressed with your thorough background in user research. And so was that part of your studies where you learned the methodologies? I, I did, but I also read a lot. 
I, I love to read. I'm a voracious reader. And once I have decided on something, which is a good trait about me and a pain in the ass trait about me, once I've decided on something, I'm all in. I would spend a lot of time reading every book I could get my hands on, everything from Jesse James Garrett to the Polar Bear book to obscure cognitive psychology books. I, I really tried to think of every way I could evolve my thinking about how humans behave, psychology, sociology. That was a lot of my my curiosity, my innate curiosity, and just my passion for what I felt was this, this area of research and design that I felt was still nascent at that point in time. And I, I really felt there was something special that I could bring to it something special that I could share with other people. JD, I think that's so uh, interesting. One of the things that you touched on there is that, is that passion. It's something, you know, over the years uh, as a hiring manager, it's something I'm always super interested in, right? I want to know what books, what blogs, who's read, who are you reading? Because I, you know, I want to work with people who feel that passion. And that's exactly what you were just talking about. Yeah, it drives people crazy. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I really love what I do. Um, I felt like I spent my career kind of looking at different things. Did I mention that I made, um, I had a natural soap company? <laughs> oh, no. Amongst other things. Wow. That is, that is so Southern California. Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> a lot of patchouli and lavender. <laughs> When I, I said before, I felt like you represented some, some trends. One of the important ones, I think, is the emergence in the last couple of years of a distinct UX researcher role. That's something I see job descriptions for. I hear from recruiters. It's really something that's sort of emerged as a specialty within the discipline. Is that How did you, how did you get there? And, and tell me what you think differentiates a UX researcher from a UX designer. Yeah, that's a great question. I started off in UX kind of as a, in technology, the product manager, because I had been a producer and a, a project manager in my other careers, and I had really strong organizational skills. And so I started off as a product manager. But over time, and particularly when I was at Yahoo, I realized that when I was writing requirements, I was spending a lot of time um, wanting to understand the user and looking at all kinds of methods and techniques to better understand human behavior and user patterns. It really just spoke to me. And I was doing some design at the time. After I moved to product, through product management, I was also doing some information architecture and interaction design. And I loved wireframing, but I really wanted to spend more time understanding people. And I, I made the decision myself. And again, it was before it was really prominent in the field, probably in the early 2000s, 2003 maybe, I was really deciding that research was the area that spoke to me. And I remember looking in um, on job sites and going, there's not a lot of job description for researcher. What am I doing? But I said, you know what? I just, I just felt like it was going to go that way. I have a bit of a I'm very good at being um, predictive about where markets are going. And I, I felt I'm very pragmatic and I kind of write lists and I thought about the market. I thought about globalization. I thought about um, technology and I thought about human behavior. Um, and I would, was reading voraciously all kinds of information. I was also really big on history and I 
watched a lot of um, History Channel about the Industrial Revolution and how understanding how in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, when Ford was making cars, um, he was the king at first, but he got market share, but he actually was building the cars and he wasn't thinking about what people wanted in a car. Um, and then other uh, competitors came in and quickly usurped him. At one point, he had market dominance. And then as people got, became more accustomed to cars, they wanted windows, they wanted uh, different colors, and he lost market share. So I really thought about all those things and thought that understanding how humans felt about technology and what they needed from it was going to be where the market was going to go. And I really just believed um, and it was uh, several years of believing, <laughs> a good three or four years of just thinking that this is where things have got to go, and I'm I'm going to stick this with this, and if I have to, I'll move to design, but I really think research is where my strength is, because I, I really have a deep passion for understanding human behavior, and I thought if I bring it, just bring all my energy into it, I can make it work. And luckily... <laughs> Luckily for me, the market moved that way. And so I think I was just kind of, I had an internal deep belief that we couldn't build technology without researching and understanding human behavior. So I'd say it was just a happy accident, maybe. Not, not so much an accident with all your studies and reading <laughs> and practicing. So JD, you've been working on this project for Enterprise UX ROI, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, it was crazy how it came about. I, I've been doing some work with kind of melding qualitative and quantitative research. When I, when I first started doing UX research, um, there was a lot of bifurcation in the, in the practice. There were people who were very adamant about calling themselves qualitative researchers um, with using techniques like ethnography and heuristic reviews. And there were people who were very quantitative. And there was kind of this, this unspoken competition between them. Because I'd come from so many different fields and had so many different um, perspectives, I just saw both ends of them has um, means to an end, that they were all just data points pointing at something we needed to, to know or informing us, informing our, our decisions. So the funny thing was over the years I had worked at Yahoo where I did a benchmark study where we used a combination of quantitative and qualitative data, survey data and interviews to, to look at different properties and how they um, users were behaving and to better understand and evolve that user experience. When I was at Kelly Blue Book, we were looking to do a redesign, and there was a lot of initiative and energy in the company around a redesign. My concern was you couldn't really measure the value of the redesign without understanding a baseline or measuring from some point in time. I was doing a lot of research and had found an article by Jeff Sorrow. And just by happenstance, I had some questions. I, there was an email address on the article. I sent an email expecting nothing. And he actually reached back out to me and um, set up a call. And we chatted about um, using one of his metrics called the SUM, the system, um, the single usability metric. And uh, we ended up working together for four years over four different studies where we initiated um, an annual Kelly 
Blue Book benchmark study. What I had wanted to do while I was there was measure on an annual basis these top tasks that a user would do on Kelly Blue Book site and then be able to look at how the design was improving or potentially impacting in a negative way users' experience. So I also wanted to work, I worked with web analytics, but I, I wanted to be able to take all that data and then create some kind of metric or make a connection to company KPIs. I wasn't, wasn't able to do that there for various reasons, but it was something I always wanted to do. When I came to ADP, the subject came up again. We're about to do a redesign. How do we measure the value of the UX team related to, you know, that redesign? We've invested in an innovation center. All these enterprise companies are investing in these innovation centers. We're bringing in these UX people because everybody else is doing it. They're supposed to be key differentiators for the market. What are they really bringing to the table? So my, my boss's boss had kind of presented that, that question to her, and I, I suggested that we look at doing a benchmark study and be able to do that in a way where we could look at it the user's top tasks before the redesign and then, then after. Um, and that's really how the whole thing came about, started, is we just started investigating how to do this. The trouble was, while people did benchmarks, and I had done it at Kelly Blue Book and Yahoo, those were consumer-based companies. No one really did it for enterprise because it's really hard and you have a lot of, um, you have a lot more constraints for enterprise. You have generally proprietary software, it's behind a firewall, um, it's behind sign-in, um, and all of those came up has um, definitely challenges during our, our, as we've evolved our initiative. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm impressed, uh, and I have been, for many years with you, that you even managed to get a bunch of benchmark studies done. Um, that's the, the kind of thing uh, I've rarely seen in my enterprise experience, people actually uh, understanding why that would even be important. Um, I love the idea of focusing on the on the top tasks. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of the, the Google Heart framework, right? That one has always been a, a, a bit of a mystery to me. The task completion uh, is the T in heart. Uh, something for you all out there in podcast land to look up if you're not familiar. Um, tell me about, I mean, the thing that, that is so intriguing, and, and I said to this to you before, that I think you've gotten a lot farther uh, than many other practitioners have in this realm of really trying to connect to KPIs and ROI, uh, the metrics for the overall business. What's What have been the biggest challenges there? <laughs> Where do I start? Well, just to be uh, clear, most people wouldn't even a attempt it. Well, again, that that's my personality. It's part of my there. Once I've decided on something, I'm like a bulldog. And I really felt like this was, it was really funny. We started this initiative um, almost two years ago. And it was right before everybody started saying ROI. And really thinking about it has a connection to KPIs. I just felt like this was going to be valuable, that you couldn't start talking logically in a company about UX and its value if you couldn't actually quantitatively show that that measurement in some way. So some of the, the challenges, we've there's so many. Um, in an enterprise company, you have what's oftentimes security issues. Um, what we wanted to do originally was build a special environment for this test and have recruit participants and have them all do the same task and be very controlled like, you know, your standard experiment design. We ran into problems immediately in the beginning because we couldn't secure this controlled environment. 
Um, we went round and round and tried everything. And a lot of the issue was because we were doing a redesign, we couldn't, and there was limited production sites, we couldn't secure one that we could use over time, nor could we secure the resources to keep it up to date, study over study. So it was insisted upon that we you have our users during a study go into their own software, their own experience from ADP. So that was a challenge. We had to come up with um, tasks that could go across different kinds of users and roles um, because we weren't always sure if the person who we recruited would do all of the tasks. And even the top task portion was something the company had never done before. People, um, it's a large company, it's typical in enterprise companies. People are very siloed. Um, even if products work together from the user's perspective, you have two different product teams who don't think of it as a total experience from the user's perspective. So trying to, at first we, we decided, I was like, okay, I'm going to use my anthropology classes <laughs> that I took while working on my degree, and we're going to do free listing. It's this anthropological technique where you internally survey people, have them list the top five things that their clients would do, assuming that your, your subject matter experts, your schmees, would know best for their product what their users are doing, what's most important. We found that was not really as much the case. They, they knew, but it was really from their own particular feature perspective. It wasn't broad. It wasn't end-to-end. So that's been one of the biggest and continues to be a challenge is having people think of tasks as opposed to features. Um, generally, you speak to product managers, and this is I've seen this in consumer as well as enterprises. They're thinking about a feature. They're not thinking about a job or a task that a user is doing that could include several features. So that's been a challenge. Um, just getting software. We had to get a particular kind of software that would allow us to measure, to gather enough participants to do look at statistical significance. Um, so purchasing that kind of software in an organization where people thought of UX and, you know, the most they thought for special software for us was Post-its. What <laughs> special software are you talking about? Um, we, um, I had used before when I was at Kelly Blue Book software called UserZoom. The few software um, that was built for um, quantitative user research, remote studies. You can do the remote moderated or remote unmoderated, and we do both in our methodology um, to, um, to be sure that we not only get the quantitative information, but qualitative as well. But you have to be able to measure task time from um, beginning to end. You have to validate that the user completed the task correctly. You have to be able to um, look at uh, uh, task completion, task time. We also threw in metrics um, post-task, like how long did that feel like that took you? How difficult did that feel like? All of these were metrics we gathered, but you had to be able to do it in a uniform way, and so we needed software like UserZoom. Coming up with the metrics, that was pain. Finding company KPIs that were across the organization, because, again, silos in a large enterprise company. You're talking 65,000 people at a company like ADP. People don't always talk to each other. So trying to find overarching metrics that could speak to um, and make a correlation to our UX metrics, that was a challenge. Um, again, coming up with a list of UX metrics and then gathering them in the study design so that we could um, look at them study over study, being sure that we established 
the right metrics so different fluctuations in them over time would help inform us. Um, I mean, that's just a, a small list. Finding a recruiting list, um, you know, in an enterprise organization, it's you can't just call a panel company. It's a very niche set of people, generally with a very specific set of skills. So finding a recruiting list, um, being able to, to send out a large blast of emails and not have enterprise clients freak out because they think someone is... Um, gotten past the firewall or security of an organization. We, we, we dealt with all of those challenges and more during this study. Amazing. I'm really curious. You, you mentioned a list of UX metrics. Uh, what, are, what, are, what are some of the metrics you're talking about specifically for the listeners out there who are going to ask us this question? You know, we're still playing with that. That's a really good question. We, we tried to collect as many as possible because I have a working theory that in the same way that you can look at the health of an economy, you have to look at the health of a user experience with a set of metrics or a met- of index of metrics. So in the same way, we look at leading, lagging, and coincident metrics for the economy, job growth or gross domestic product, GDP, for... Heavy US, machine orders. Right. right. <laughs> you might look at... For UX, you might look at NPS. It's a, it's generally a CX or a market research metric, and it's very volatile. But because most companies are have one metric that they're looking for for customer satisfaction, um, it's generally included. We also looked at the SUS, the System Usability Scale, because it's a traditional UX metric, and it has ten questions that incorporate um, reliability and stability of the system. So we we use that as well. We also ask a question about overall satisfaction of our product. We ask a question about, um, we kind of stole some questions from the SuperQ, which is another metric from um, Jeff Sorrow that includes uh, questions about loyalty and trust. Um, So we included questions from that. We also included questions about credibility of the software experience, particularly for a payroll product like ADP. You have to be able to, people have to be able to trust that the information is correct. Um, And so we wanted to measure whether design changes um, were actually impacting people's feelings of trust and and credibility of the experience. So we included all those things. It's, It's not a recipe. I, I think everybody's always looking for a shortcut when it comes to, to UX and measurement. I think it's a framework, but basically you're looking for a set of metrics that will have the most explanatory power and correlations to your company KPIs, but will inform the user experience changes over time. And it's, it's very tricky and it's very, it's difficult to do. We ended up with a set of about nine metrics. Um, that we look at study over study. Um, we've done three studies at this point. We're doing two a year. We'll do another one coming up in in May. Um, but what we're trying to do is look at those metrics and decide which ones have the strongest explanatory power and correlations to our company KPIs. What we have seen so far is we're starting to narrow in on NPS and as well as customer call. Um, center reduction, contacting our client, our representatives, seeing a reduction in those has a correlation to improvements 
in the software or the design of the software, so users can become more self-sufficient as opposed to being confused and calling in. So those are the ones we're settling in on, but there's, I would say there is no perfect set of metrics. It's an iterative process of selecting some, as many as possible to begin with, and then focusing in over time. I'm curious about the top tasks. You mentioned that some people wanted to identify their feature as a task. And so what steps did you take to identify the top task and also build consensus around those? And did it parallel with sort of the sales funnel, right? The steps in the sales funnel directly related to the tasks on site? We actually had to use, as with everything here, we had to use several different methods to come up with the top tasks. We as a team had done a lot of field research, contextual inquiry and ethnography. So we had begun to gather data across different products. When we realized we had to gather um, the top task and try to have a, a subset, a set of top tasks for our users to select, we looked at different, every kind of different method we could to inform um, our selection set. So we looked at marketing tools, <laughs> you know, the marketing tools that where the salespeople would go out and say, hey, these are the tasks you're doing now with our product. Here are the kind of a probably a very extended list. So it looks like with our product, you only do a portion of those. So we knew that those before lists potentially from marketing perspective would be a bit bloated, but we wanted to look at those. And we wanted to take them seriously and, and look at it, triangulate them with our, our field research. We looked at analytics, not a lot of Google Analytics. Google Analytics is super new here. It's really only been since we've been doing our second um, benchmark study, um, really advocating that we needed to look at analytics as well as our own metrics um, that we gathered that analytics has been evolving here at ADP. A lot of enterprise companies don't even have analytics um, instituted. So we looked at those as well, and they were coming less as analytics and more from logs like Splunk or some other log, um, some other log pulling um, software. So we looked at that. Um, we also did internal interviews. Um, so it was a real difficult mix mash of of ways that we gathered the information. And then we actually took the list um, and put them in front of users and had users um, select with a survey. Say, for instance, there were 25 top tasks that we had discovered. We then put them in front of users and said, here are 20 tasks, but you have to pick the top three that are the most important for you to get the job done. And then we worked with our consultant, Jeff Sorrow, to do an analysis of the frequently, most frequently selected tasks for that product across X number of, of respondents. So we had to have a big enough respondent pool to do that statistical analysis. So that's where the, the client contact list importance came in because we needed at least 500 participants. Unheard of in enterprise, unheard of, but it was, we really had to push for if we really wanted to be able to say with any kind of statistical significance that um, these particular tasks were more selected over others, were most voted on by the actual users who did those tasks. Wording was important, um, that they're not, you know, redundant. Um, Jerry McGovern, who is um, the uh, real advocate for the top task methodology, has written books about it. He talked about a pattern where you put that many tasks in front of users 
And generally, there will be a pattern of you'll get the first five to ten, and that'll get something like 75% of the vote. And the bottom 70%, (laughs) 75% will kind of fall to the bottom. And it was a pattern we saw as well. I just, I hope everyone who's listening to this can appreciate the the magnitude of the tasks that, that you've undertaken. I mean, Herculean, I would say, if people realize that having, having been inside enterprises, just to, just to understand that you've got to stay buttoned up on your methodology, that you've got to basically drive this conversation across various units, even, and you, you mentioned, right, even getting enterprise software licenses, right? It's like every single one of these things is just no, no easy task. It's, 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 really, it's really an impressive effort that you guys have put together there. And so now you're almost done, right? Now you know perfectly well what the ROI of UX is at, at ADP. No, I think what's been really fascinating for us, um, you know, when we started this this journey um, almost two years ago, it even took some time to convince our, our design team that you could measure design. They were they were not convinced immediately. Let me say that. <laughs> they, <laughs> They were like, what are you crazy researchers doing? You can't measure design. Um, so that, that took a little convincing. That was just one part of it. In terms of where we are, what has really become more apparent across the organization has the idea of metrics has come into the conversation related to design. And that really wasn't there before. If I can take credit for, for anything, any, in any small way, it's been changing the conversation about what design is, what UX design is. When we came here, people thought it was this magical thing and they did, everybody did it and it was a bunch of ideas. And I used to say, it's not magic, it's methodical. You actually have a set of steps whether it's qualitative or quantitative. You have to understand who your users are. You have to understand what they're doing and what they prioritize. And then you actually have to constrain what it is you're trying to design, having great ideas but tons of them without understanding what your company objectives are or what your success metrics are. That's not really going to result in a good design that actually impacts the user where the user needs it most. Um, and so once we start having this discussion about metrics, it really, in very marginal ways and gaining momentum over time, it's really started to change the conversation about what design is. Hence, before, there wasn't a lot of discussion about metrics, about measuring success, even for huge initiatives. What we've realized as an organization is to measure things, you actually have to have archival and existing data. We realized that our call center categorization has been a little floppy, and so, um, to be honest, and so this CFO and our customer experience team has actually brought in an outside vendor to go back and look at two years' worth of call center categorization and use machine learning and algorithms to categorize them in a better way because they found that the client the um, client representatives are um, too busy when they're taking the call and they only have five seconds between calls so they're not categorizing them as as stringently as they should so that's been an outcome and, and just really realizing that the company has an organization as a whole needs to be able to look at the data related to metrics so 
that being said, the magic is that we haven't been able to make as clear a correlation as we would like at this point because we're still starting to evolve the rigor of the data that would help us understand the connection. Um, you can't say we released this um, design and it's improved or reduced call center calls as a whole because there could have been other noise in that data. Maybe they changed the service org or there was initiative in terms of um, the, the description or um, what different client representatives were doing. So that could impact user satisfaction. It could impact a reduction in customer calls. So our challenge now is to try to understand, a, try to develop clarity around where UX design has a real impact on NPS as well as customer calls by being clear which category of customer calls um, and what themes in the NPS are directly correlated to UX, if that makes sense. Right, right. Well, you have a speaking engagement coming up soon, I hear, at the Rosenfeld virtual webinar on the 25th, right? Yeah, April 25th. I'll be talking a little bit more about our uh, our journey and some of the challenges um, in trying to set, a set up a framework for uh, different organizations in terms of uh, start even starting to think about uh, a UX ROI for different organizations. And is that the same topic that you'll be speaking at for UX Enterprise as well in June? I'll be speaking with two other UX professionals, and we'll really talk be talking around the theme of communication, how to communicate UX efforts um, across the organization, external to the organization. So um, I think we're going to try to get really maybe a little existential with it. Um, I think we're excited about speaking about different ways which we can talk about how we communicate the value of our profession within and external to organizations. That's amazing. And I want to tell everyone that if you'd like to hear more from JD, you should look. She also has a Convey UX talk online, which is quite excellent. Oh, of course, because it has the Princess Bride in exactly. it. Exactly. Um, and we know from your journey that you've been doing this a while, that's how you were able to get the amazing Twitter handle, UX Girl. So people should follow you uh, on Twitter as well. So, JD, before we leave today, I'd love to hear what advice you would give to someone who wants to get their start in UX research. Oh, that's a good question. Um, be passionate, it's hard. And you have to commit to continual learning. It's not a, a one and done, even going to school or getting a degree. Um, it's a profession. I think all professions are, are moving in this direction, but particularly UX because we're dealing with technology is be passionate about it. Be sure it's something you love and be a lifelong learner. And if you could state it, what would you like your legacy to be in this industry? to really focus on making things better for humans. Technology should not be leading us. It should be helping us. We shouldn't be being led by technology. We should be being supported and leading it. It should make our lives better. So really caring about the humans connected to the technology. I think that, for me, is what I'm passionate about, is using technology to improve all our lives and to make them better. Great. Thank you so much, J.D. This has been a great conversation. And I know our listeners find it super valuable and interesting, too. I mean, it's incredible what you guys are able to do. Oh, 
thank you guys. It's been such a hard um, road. It's wonderful to have people say, gosh, this is really hard. I think I think sometimes here, because I've been doing it here in the organization, I've been the one saying, no, it's got to be right. No, it's got we can't do that because then you can't measure it. I think everyone's just gotten so sick of me. Well, you're striving for excellence. That's why. They don't realize how hard it is and that sometimes I want to give up too. It's nice to have people re- remind me how hard it is. We're so honored to have you on the show. Thank you, guys. I'm so flattered that you asked me to speak. And hopefully um, there's something valuable that I was able to share with the audience. UX Radio is produced by Lara Federoff and Chris Chandler. If you want more UX Radio, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Or go to ux-radio.com where you'll find podcasts, resources, and more. This episode is brought to you by Philosophy. Philosophy helps entrepreneurs and organizations validate and develop their promising ideas through agile design, rapid prototyping, and software craftsmanship. To learn more, visit philosophy with an IE.is.